It's Thursday, September 7th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The United States is experiencing a spike in immigration, a spike in border detentions, and a spike in amnesty applications. The natural response to one spike is another. Donald Trump was intrigued by affixing spikes to his border wall design, and Governor Greg Abbott of Texas landed somewhere else in his version of a spiked wall. He landed in the water. The wall was built with razor wire on orange balls installed on the riverbank. In a letter sent to Abbott by the department, the organization argues that the floating barrier was deployed without authorization from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. That series of buoys were spiked. They were ruled illegal by a federal judge yesterday. There's no evidence that the buoys worked. They strung together, but for not more than, say, three quarters of a mile. To be fair, It hasn't worked in the negative sense either. They had no tragic effects, despite reports of drownings in the buoys. There was a tweet from Democratic Rep. Joaquin Castro that, quote, Texas Governor Greg Abbott's barrel traps have caused an asylum seeker to drown, but that appears not to have been the case. Rio Grande crossers did drown, but not because of the buoys. Upstream of the buoys, the bodies were just caught in the buoys. Still, you get the sense that the architects of the now disallowed buoy scheme would not have minded had they caused deaths and drownings, because the desire was to dissuade river crossing and fear is a great motivator. It seems to me that our migration problem is approaching intractability. Unless the vast majority of us are willing to violate our principles and our consciences with barbaric actions. Some people are willing to do that or at least signal such barbarism, but not enough people. Good, thank God. And when I talk about enough of us being willing to go to these extreme means, I don't mean us in the United States only. I'm talking about the world, the world over the wealthier, better off, more peaceful, more protected from the effects of global warming countries of the North are staving off masses of desperate migrants from the global South. This is happening everywhere, in Europe, from Africa, in the Middle East, in Australia, where they house Iranian and Sudanese asylum seekers in a detention center in Papua New Guinea. Even China, which is getting richer, I guess you could consider China emerging into a country of the North, but they seek to keep out refugees from Myanmar at their border. But it doesn't matter, or it's hard to make these policies work, because the motivation of a desperate people will overcome the distaste of a more comfortable people every time. And the only policy debate becomes about meanness. How mean should the better off nations be? How much is meanness the motive for keeping migrants out? Are the policies and tactics used to pursue this policy inherently mean or just mean when our political rivals use them? How mean can exclusionary countries be without being so mean that it will turn off even those citizens who want the immigration problem to abate? The only reliable solution, it's worse than the problem, it's a bad economy in the destination countries. That does dissuade migration, by the way. So the buoys are bad but also ineffective and therefore too cruel. But another equally mean, but ultimately meaningless solution is sure to be floated soon. On the show today, another state where conservative laws have been ruled out of order by federal judges, Alabama, it just keeps happening there. But first, 
Frederick DeBoer is a writer covering topics about cancel culture, police reform, higher education. He has a quite popular Substack. Freddie joins to discuss his new book, How Elites Ate the Social Justice Movement, where we talk about the dynamics of education and politics, how the Democrats talk to a small select group of voters while expecting societal change. We also touch on the Black Lives Matter movement. Freddie DeBoer, up next. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort, and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Freddie DeBoer is one of our great essayists. His substack is full of his trenchant prose, his surprising insights, his expertise on matters such as communication, mental health, social justice, and leftism. And he tackles these issues in a new book called How the Elites Ate the, or it's actually no, the How Elites Ate the Social Justice Movement. Freddie, welcome back to The Gist. Hey, Mike, thanks for having me. You know, uh, you would be surprised at how much time was spent on uh, on that the that you that you snuck in there, whether it's how the elites or how elites. I guess the elites, I don't know, maybe I'm working too hard on this, but the elites maybe scans as more something that a right-wing populist would say, whereas elites are something that even uh, people in your audience or elites themselves might have a more open mind to say, oh, who do you mean? You know, like when you hear someone talk about the elites, it's like when you put the definite article before a group, it's a little off-putting, right? The blacks, the gays, the Jews, etc. You know, this is one of the, uh, I, I would argue, probably the defining turn of 21st century politics is uh, the rise of educational polarization. Um, Thomas Piketty, you know, who wrote um, Capital in 21st Century, you know, he did um, a lot of work on this. And being low education was a very solid, reliable, uh, uh, very reliable, excuse me, indicator that you would be 
left-leaning uh, <clears throat> throughout the, like the 1950s, 60s, 70s, and then around the turn of the century, it starts to change, and then that accelerates dramatically in the 2010s to the point now where uh, being uh, not having a college degree is a strong indicator of being right-wing. Um, and uh, there's a lot of lefties who will tell you that, um, you know, you shouldn't mistake uh, having a college education for being wealthy or ha not having one for being poor, which is true. Um, yeah. I mean, like, you know, one of the things that I always have to tell people is this this whole narrative of Trump voters being like laid off hard hat guys who, you know, lost their job at the at the mill or whatever. I think the, the median a uh, Trump voter in 2016 made $89,000. Um, like these guys are like, they own like car dealerships, right? Like that's the kind of guy who, you know, is the archetypal Trump voter. Yeah. Boat owners, pontoon boat owners, boat owners who won't make way for a boat that deserves the, the, the more in Alabama, but go ahead. <laughs> yeah. But like at the same time, I just think it's just a mistake to not understand that um, the, uh, the center of intellectual gravity uh, the left of center, right? Just however you want to define it, just the left of center of American life has shifted so heavily towards uh, the college educated, towards the universities and the think tanks, um, the composition of the staffers who make up the, the, the sort of the foot soldiers of the Democratic Party that has shifted so, so heavily that like that kind of phenomenon has to be understood and like to, to make us at least grasp, if nothing else, that like 60 plus percent of Americans over 25 still don't have a college degree. Right. Right. And like, we can't afford to ignore those dynamics. I do want to ask you about the elites. Let's try to steel man this argument as much as we can, and then we'll go into the different um, specific movements. So first of all, one of the reasons why the left is so dominated by college education, even though the majority, vast majority of people aren't college educated, many, many more, a much higher percentage is, which is a good thing. It also used to be the case that a college education represented elitism per se, and it has since become much less of the case. Um, we would, if we were to cast our minds back to the 1950s and see some of these, you know, scrappy union organizers, let's say, if someone were to say, wouldn't it be great if those guys had been able to get a college education or if they didn't have to fight in the army and benefit from the GI Bill, you know, the normal uh, way of things, this obviously smart person who's spending his time on an assembly line, what if we could move that person to college and they'd have a better life? All those things are good. So there are some very beneficial um, aspects to more people getting more education. And then when they do get more education, they're going to have less in common with the maybe where they came from or the people who are less educated. But did that necessarily have to result in this polarization of the elite, the college educated versus the non-elite? Um <clears throat> Did it have to happen? Uh, I, Wait, I'm I'm imagining a world where college education is good, knowledge and education is good. Let's educate a whole bunch more people. Oh, look, they're leftists, or they turn out to be more liberal. Aha, maybe because they're smarter. So that'll be that'll mean good things for the left. Smart people will lead them, and they'll try to get more people educated, and there won't be this elite capture that you talk about. Sure. So there's, I mean, there's a, a few things that you could say there. The first is that, um, <clears throat> you know. Uh, 
it, it, it is generically the case that people who are more educated tend to have higher incomes, right? Um, and it is also the case that uh, the distribution of people into leadership positions in various things, right, is not immune to the uh, <laughs> influences of who goes to truly elite schools. Uh, I'm going to completely mangle the statistics. I'm doing it from memory. But um, I think in the book, this is in the book, but um, I talked, you know, at one point they did a study in like the in top leadership positions in like the, I think it was like the top 20 newspapers in the United States, like 40% of them came from the same 12 schools or something like that, right? Yes, yes. It was almost right. It was, I remember this study. It was 2018 and it was from the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and something like the high 40s percent came from the Ivy League schools plus Stanford, University of Chicago, Duke, yeah. and one other. Um, and so, and so what, what is inevitably going to happen is that like if you have a, a left movement that is geared towards the educated and the whole reason why most people get educated is to make more money. And they do that because it actually does work where college graduates do make more money. Um, and you have a scenario where um, it's stratified within the sort of uh, the elite messaging operations. So uh, elite media, but also uh, universities, also the nonprofits, which are a huge role, play a huge role in all this. Um, you're going to end up with a party where the leadership just doesn't know what it's like to, to not have a lot of money. Right. Like, you know, that's just that's just inevitable. Um, so that is, is one problem. The other problem is. I'm someone who's just philosophically uh, opposed to trying to squeeze more and more people into college. Um, my first book is about, among other things, why that's been kind of a disaster as a policy goal. Um, we are, are, have already stretched um, these uh, schools to the breaking point that are the sort of two-year schools, the, the open enrollment schools, the schools that have uh, the, the lowest admission standards, Perversely, those also tend to be the least resourced of our schools, right? So the students that have struggled the most attend to schools that have the least resources. Um, since the high school graduation rate has risen a great deal, the cost of uh, remediation in college has absolutely exploded, which is a story that I keep expecting some big place to do an expose on. Um, and so like, just the system is already kind of at a breaking point. Um, there's been an enrollment uh, drop uh, because of demographics that has really threatened the, the basic fiscal future of many of these institutions. And I just don't think that we should be tied to the health of any given uh, institution the way that we're tied to the health of the universities right now. And for the record, the universities are places where uh, your average Republican state senator, right, uh, who uh, is deeply antagonistic to all of these movements, um, has an unusual amount of sway. I mean that you know the what's happening in Florida is a model that could be uh, replicated all over the country. So you said that people who do earn more money in colleges and accelerant to that just lose touch about people with less money. Now, neither of us are black. If we were uh, within the Black Lives Matter movement, we could say, okay, I might make more money, but I haven't forgotten what it's like to be black. Why would the Black Lives Matter movement or whatever you want to dub the protests after the murder of uh, George Floyd, why would that still be subject to the economic factors you're talking about or the elitism you're talking about? Yeah, I would say that uh, Black Lives Matter activists are doing exactly what they should do, right? Which is that they're advancing their interests and they're uh, advancing a vision of racial justice that is consonant with their values. What I would say is that we should not expect Black Lives Matter activists to have to serve as avatars for all Black people and for Black opinion. 
But the flip side of that is we should not mistake Black Lives Matter activists as avatars for Black opinion um, writ large. This is a perennially uh, unpopular thing to say, but the reality is that historically, since the creation of the LBJ coalition, since the creation of the uh, Civil Rights Coalition in the 1960s and the end of uh, the Dixiecrats, um, uh, Black voters have acted as a moderating force uh, on the Democratic Party. Uh, <clears throat> within the Democratic Coalition, right, they are uh, and have always been uh, one of the more conservative elements. Because of the way that American racial politics are talked about, right, that is sort of taken to be this sort of controversial thing to say. But it's confirmed by polling and voting behavior going back 60 years, right? It's true that compared to the average American, the average Black American uh, is left-leaning. But within the Democratic coalition, they're not left-leaning. And in fact, one of the weird things that's happened with this educational polarization and, and with white Democrats having dramatically higher college education rates than Black uh, ones is that on all manner of issues, including on racial justice issues, right, in polling, white liberals uh, are further to the left than Black Democrats writ large, right? Um, and so to sort of say, well, you know, Black Lives Matter activists uh, know what it is like to be Black, well, of course they do. And they have, all, they, of course, they have things to teach me about what it's like to be Black. And I think one of the essential sort of arguments of this whole movement is to say that, like, it doesn't matter how educated you are. It doesn't matter how professional you are. It doesn't matter how successful you are. You could be killed by a cop, too. And that's really important to say. But when it comes to core questions, right, of policy, uh, it simply is not the case that Black Lives Matter activists uh, sort of represent mainstream, uh, mainstream Black Democrat opinion. And with no other group would we think that that was true, right? Like if I said, um, <clears throat> here's these uh, Occupy Wall Street white lefties, you know, so they are indicative of all of white uh, Democrat opinion, you'd say that's crazy, right? But it's the same thing with Black Lives Matter, right? They are part of a vanguard of sort of activist thought. They're far left. Um, I like that because I'm far left, but we shouldn't mistake them for being sort of, uh, you know, our avatar of what Black Democrats want. So then, why? well, a couple challenges. One, during the civil rights movement, there was a broad swath of people who were in charge of that movement, but the ask was civil rights, and that really was their ask. That was their slogan. We understood what they were asking for, and it was actually where black opinion was. With the Black Lives Matter movement, it seemed like their ask was things like defund the police or at least Black Lives Matter. And I would just say that that seemed to be their ask. The equivalent to the civil rights movement seemed to map on pretty well. Other movements, you know, what Gandhi was asking for, what Cesar Chavez was asking for. And my point or my question would be that it, it was it was an improper ask. It was an unpopular ask and it shouldn't have been the ask. So you're saying that, you know, they're the vanguard. You got to expect them to say some of these things. I guess some of my questions are, why wasn't the broader majority of conservative black people pulling them in and saying, stop saying that? Okay, because, I mean, the first reason is because like the kind of people, like uh, talking about media bias is really annoying because there's lots of different ways that people will pull your card over it. Um, I don't think that the media has a left bias at all when it comes to foreign policy. I don't think it has a consistently left bias when it comes to uh, economics, et cetera. But on cultural issues, and particularly on racial issues, 
you basically have the mainstream media, which is almost almost exclusively left leaning on those issues, and then you have conservative media separate. There is no sort of independent, like sort of centrist media uh, that sort of speaks on the issues of racial justice. So, um, like the fact that not even black conservatives, right, but just like like the black mainstream, like the median black American is like. Um, I think they're in their early, late forties, early fifties. They've got some college, but don't degree, but no degree. They make like $44,000 a year or something like that. Um, that's just not a person who is the same as, right? Someone who, uh, lives in Jackson Heights and who, uh, has a degree from Vassar and, uh, you know, goes to organizing meetings three, three times a week, you know, like, like those are just, just very different perspectives. The the difference is like one of those kinds of person is represented in the New York Times, right? You know, like um, John McWhorter, uh, who is uh, a black linguist uh, at Columbia, I believe, uh, and who um, is self-identified as a liberal, but who is constantly called a black conservative because of sort of his point of view. Um, you know, he is routinely called not black, right? There's this like, there's this sort of circular reasoning, like where if you don't toe a particular line on what it means to be, to have black opinions or to be a black person in the mainstream media, then somebody on Twitter is going to say, you're not actually black. And so that that's num reason number one. Number two, look, uh, I, <laughs> I'm well on record, including in the book, on not thinking much of the defund the police uh, message. Um, it is, uh, I think, uh, wildly unpopular, including among black Democrats. Again, this is a point has to be underlined that, uh, in polling again and again and again, black Democrats have said that they don't want to defund the police. And in fact, in a lot of the polling, they said that they want an increase of police presence, uh, in their neighborhoods. Uh, which makes a lot of sense uh, if you understand that um, people who uh, are poorer are more likely to be uh, the victims of property crime and are also have less ability to uh, replace property if it's if it's destroyed or stolen. Right. So that all makes sense. Um, but yeah, defund the police, I think, was a mistake. Why, why was it the thing that it coalesced around? I genuinely believe because it was a coherent like idea policy idea and people didn't really have one okay like i like you can look at sort of the history of this thing part of the reason why defund the police took up so much sort of air um, is because there really wasn't like a competing vision for what the policy ask was i would argue that um so like defund the police sort of just sort of sucked up all the oxygen i talked to so many lefties now who want to say, oh, why do you, would you talk about defund the police? It was always a fantasy. It wasn't a big deal. But you can go back and look at the, at the, at the archives, right, and see how much it sort, of, it sort of dominated the discussion. Absolutely. And I talked about it at the time, and I was, uh, you know, I talked about it two weeks in, and I took a lot of uh, guff for it, and I explained defund the police is a terrible ask, and I got uh, letters, emails saying, that's not what defund the police means. I direct you to this Trevor Noah monologue about what defund the police means, and in his in, and in his framing, defund the police meant we just want more mental services, health, mental health services people to address the homeless. And then two days later, there was that big op-ed in the New York Times that you referenced. No, we really mean defund the police. So there was Camo Bell did a whole defund the police segment on CNN where there was gold 
post shifting and no, it really means this. And then other activists would say, no, it really means what we say it means. And then there was the sane washing, which isn't afraid I, which wasn't a phrase I had come across before I meant with you. So the, I read it in your book. So the overall message was there seems to be this ask. Some members of this coalition really mean it. Some members of the coalition think it's this great slogan that could mean less to some listeners, but could mean exactly what other listeners say. And some people think it's just a Republican ploy to paint all Democrats with this policy brush. So my question is, do we blame the elites for that? It seems to be a horrible messaging and strategic decision, but it's a decision that the leaders of this movement seem to have made. Yeah, I, I, that is definitely an example of, of the elite sort of failing. I mean, I, I, I want to, so as a sort of preconditional thing, I want to say it's important to note it, like not knowing what the policy ask is has been an, a major issue for the broader racial justice uh, fight for many decades. Okay, so, um, it, so you know, it, it was widely, uh, it's widely believed that after the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act, the uh, civil rights movement started to slow down, started to lose focus, started to no longer make clear progress. Uh, in fact, Martin Luther King is someone who said that, that, you know, the, the movement had appeared to lose its way. And, um, it's just like it's always much easier when you have very specific things that you know legislators can do for you. And once it becomes more difficult uh, than um, to sort of name what you want, uh, th then all of a sudden the task is harder in multiple dimensions. I mean, I think reparations, uh, you know, I think reparations is a complicated uh, topic. Uh, in an ideal world, I would be fine with, with reparations. We're not in an ideal world. Um, but like, it, reparations has been this recurring idea over the course of decades because, again, like it's something very specific you can ask for, right? Have the government give black people money. Um, <clears throat> whereas a lot of this other stuff, it's like, you know, at, at a certain level, the cop just has to make the decision not to pull the trigger, right? And you can't, you can't really legislate, but legislatively force him to make that decision. But certainly, I think that, you know, it, the fact that the George Floyd Justice and Policing Bill, which was an omnibus uh, police reform bill, went through the congressional process twice, was not defeated in up and down votes, but uh, was not advanced because of the sort of makeup of Congress, et cetera. It had a lot of really good stuff in it. Um, I think that that bill, which included things like mandatory body cameras and uh, at least at some attempt to end qualified immunity, which protects police from accountability, um, banning chokeholds, those sort of things. Um, that bill sort of w was the victim of the moment because it didn't look radical enough, right? Like it, it was a it was a collection of really good things that we should have passed, but it wasn't like one really big thing. And everybody was screaming about how we had to totally transform society. Yeah, because that was a reform and we need reform. But there is a cadre of activists on this issue who will blast someone who advocates for reform. They say we need abolition. And you didn't write about DeRay McKesson in the book, but he's been on my show and I've interviewed him. And 
right when this moment hit, he was out with the eight can't wait agenda, doing things like banning chokeholds and requiring de-escalation, requiring warning before deadly force and just banning shooting into moving vehicles. And even if nationally we weren't going to take that up, that could have been taken up on municipal or especially state levels. And he was cut off at the knees by members of his coalition who just tarred him as a reformer because reform is what we need. And he spent a lot of time talking about, you know, just talking about the word reform and how reform is a step to abolition. And I guess he was doing what he thought he had to do to keep the coalition in line, but it went nowhere because it wasn't at least, well, maybe it was connected to DeRay himself, but it wasn't seen as sufficiently radical, which was out of step with actually what we needed. Yeah. I mean, and here's where I really think that, um, I don't want to say the cowardness, but the fear of the mainstream media, I think, played a, a, a big role, specifically the fear of the white mainstream media. I think that there were a lot of white liberals out there uh, who probably had critical sentiment to share about all everything that was happening, but who were very, very scared of becoming pariahs and losing their jobs, etc. Um, <clears throat> you know, it kind of reminds me of <clears throat> trying to explain to young people what the atmosphere was like immediately after 9-11, right? Like you just, you, you can't sort of use words to get them to understand the paranoia and the panic and everything like that. Um, I think we've forgotten so, so quickly, just like what the atmosphere was like in 2020. I mean, I, I pick a couple of anecdotes in the book to try to like explain people to them. So Lee Fung, who at the time was an investigative journalist for The Intercept, you know, The Intercept, I think, is is a uh, publication that has a really strong hit track record of protecting the independence of uh, its writers and its journalists, although I'm sure Glenn Greenwald would disagree. Um, but uh, Lee Fang uh, took a interview of a black activist who said, you know, police violence is terrible, but we also have to talk about the violence in our own community. And for sharing that interview, and, and quoting from it, um, he was absolutely hounded and came by by the account of several people I know, came very close to losing his job at The Intercept. And that kind of thing just created a, sort of a discipline within with, within media. If you, you know, the hammer that sticks out gets nailed down, right? And I think people were real, real scared of ruining their careers. Freddie DeBoer is the author of a very popular Substack and now the new book, How Elites Ate the Social Justice Movement. Freddie, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Mike. And we will continue our conversation over on Pesca Plus, where we talk about other social movements that DeBoer has been a part of, Freddie's background in activism, and if these big movements like BLM fall apart because there's no one to say no to bad tactics. You can subscribe or upgrade at subscribe.mikepesca.com. And now the spiel. Alabama. Try as it might, it just can't give its black citizens the full benefits of their voting rights. Well, I said try as they might. I could have said they might want to try. From the era of Reconstruction in 1877 until 1992, Alabama just couldn't draw a map with a majority black district, meaning they simply couldn't figure out a way to elect a single black representative to Congress for 115 years. 
Alabama had seven congressional seats at a voting age population that was 25% black back then. Today, it has seven congressional seats in a voting population that's a quarter black and still only one black representative in Congress, also the only Democrat they elect to Congress. Hold that thought for a second. So what happened was this map, this situation went all the way to the Supreme Court. And three months ago in Alabama v. Milligan, the court told Alabama they were violating the Constitution, the Voting Rights Act. Do better, they said. But who? Who to do better? Who would be the best at correcting the problem of a congressional map that benefited white Republican elected officials in the state of Alabama? Alabama said, we know the white Republican elected officials in the state house, which is to say the Republicans in the state house. In the Alabama Senate, every Republican is white. Every Democrat is black. Of the 105 members of the Alabama House of Representatives, there is a black Republican and two white Democrats, but everyone else is either a white Republican or a black Democrat. I'm only going by surnames and pictures. There could be some additional ethnicities I'm alighting. Apologies if so, but other journalists in Alabama with perhaps a greater knowledge of who identifies as one-eighth Cherokee have put their finger on the exact same situation. The point is, Alabama looked around for the best folks to correct this deficiency and said, by gum, we're going with the same folks who created the deficiency and continued to create the violation of the voting rights law and who argued inaccurately that the maps were not in violation, even though they actually were. On the theory, I guess, that you need a thief to catch a thief. So what happened when they got a crack at a new map? Alabama's Republican-backed congressional map illegally weakens Black residents' voting power and must be redrawn again. That's according to a federal three-judge panel in Birmingham, which ruled for the second time to throw out proposed voting districts. Maybe it's not you need a thief to catch a thief. Maybe it's more like you need a thief to steal things. The three-judge panel wrote that they were, quote, deeply troubled that the state enacted a map that the state readily admits does not provide the remedy we said federal law requires. We're not aware of any other case in which a state legislature faced with a federal court order declaring that its electoral plan unlawfully dilutes minority votes and requiring a plan that provides an additional opportunity district responded with a plan that the state concedes does not provide that district. Two of the three judges on that appeals panel, by the way, were appointed by Donald J. Trump. So now the state of Alabama says it will appeal. And they want the map that has been ruled illegal to be ruled legal. That's what an appeal's about. But until that time, they want that map to stay in place. Because staying in place really expending every single effort to never, ever change. It is what Republicans in Alabama do. That's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara. The senior producer is Joel Patterson. Michelle Pesca is CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Dooperoo, and thanks for listening.